So we're, we're pressing on in our study through 1 John, and uh, we have examined much of it, and we've uh, tried to situate it every single time as this conversation that John seems to be having with this church about knowing. That's essentially how you can think about 1 John. Uh, we've titled this series, Life Made Manifest. And essentially, he's talking about how they can know that eternal life is manifest in them. Um, Basically, the, the, the phrase that I've been using, or the question, sort of rhetorical question, is how can you know that you know that you belong to Christ? Um, that's essentially the question that he's trying to answer. And he's been answering it in sort of the same way in every chapter, but it's almost like he approaches the question with a little point, And then in the next chapter, he approaches it from the same point, but just widens his conversation. Um, so each time he's broadening the conversation in terms of how we can know that we know that we belong to Christ alone. It's a, it's a question of assurance. It's a letter, again, of assurance. He's writing to these believers, um, believers who were perhaps shaken in their faith or they were starting to question what God was doing. There was all these new ideas and philosophies and doctrines that were, were, were forming and were gaining popularity. Um, there's lots of things that were distracting or could become distracting for them. Um, does it sound familiar? Um, it should, um, because I think this letter, in terms of what it is aimed at, is, is precisely a letter that's geared towards us today, just in the sense that there's a lot of different theologies, there's a lot of different ideologies, there's a lot of different ways that people approach knowledge and truth, especially from the eternal standpoint. Um, they're going to give you ideas about, about how you can find meaning and purpose and all of those sorts of things. And John is here saying, you... Don't listen to any of that. You already know all that you need to know. You can be certain. And indeed, I think that's what I think the, the couple verses that have stood out to me so far. Actually, again, just jump back to chapter 2, verse 20. Because um, these verses just stand out to me in terms of John's endeavor, this thrust behind this letter. Notice what he says, John 2, 20. Um, First John 2.20, uh, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. You already have the knowledge that you need. It is certain because of Christ's word and Christ's spirit that is already working in you. So again, that's his premise. That's sort of the starting point. He's making sure that um, as he's coming alongside this church, how they can know that they have the knowledge of Christ and how they can be sure that they belong to him. And so in the beginning of chapter 3, as we covered last time, John, I think, is, was speaking to what we might refer to as the, the, the theological foundation of that knowledge, if you want to put big terms to it. <laughs> but again, notice from verse 1, what does he say? See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God. And then those awesome words, and so we are. <laughs> what a great foundation to begin. Why can we be called the children of God? Because of the great love that God has shown us. And then because of that love, we are the children of God. It's not a questionable reality. It's not something that is a maybe or a hope so. It's not something vague. It's not something that is amorphous. It's something that is true and certain and real. And he's telling them, because of God's great love, you are a child of God right now. <laughs> and I love that 
he gives them this certainty, and it springs again from that love that the Father has given to them. So then, now, as he's, as he's talked about that, the sort of, again, theological sort of foundation, it begins with God, his love for us. But then in this next section, I think you could maybe, if you wanted to give it big terms again, uh, I think the rest of the chapter, he sort of shifts into the, we could say, the functional identification of that love. So he's talking about this really theological sort of heady thing, and he's talking about lots of really important doctrines about how God has loved us, and this is what makes us God's children. So what does that look like on the ground? What does that look like functionally within everyday life? How can we identify a person that says, I love Christ, I love God? How can you identify that person? Um, and how can you know that they're, they're being genuine behind that claim? Well, that's sort of what he's, what he's going to get at here in this latter half. What's, what the evidence is, the everyday evidence, you might say, of God's love in us. This is sort of what he's been building up to the whole time throughout this little section. Notice verse 10. Because he kind of is wrapping, verse 10 is sort of that transition verse. He's wrapping up the first half of the chapter and he's segueing into this other section. Notice he says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Uh, By this he means the love that is born in them as he talks about in verse 9. And he says, the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. So therefore you see right away he's segueing right in to this sort of functional, everyday, really practical sensibility behind how can we identify a person that loves God? What does he say? The one who loves his brother. This for John is the clearest evidence Behind the claim that you are a child of God is this brotherly love that he says abides in us. It's a love, not just between brothers. You get the sense it's a love of family. It's a family. It's, when he talks about the love of, of the brother here, you think about the love between church members. It's a brotherly love. It's a family love. It's a, it's a love that exists between those who, again, have been made part of the family of God by what? The love that the Father has given to us. We're all children within the same family of God. That's an amazing reality to think about. And here John is going to really lean into that point. And in fact, uh, throughout the rest of this whole chapter, that word love appears nine times. It occurs in so many different ways. And of course, this is why another reason why John is the apostle of love that he's often called to, referred to as that's going to get even more apparent in the next chapter. But here he's, uh, he's really hammering this home. This idea of the love that identifies a child of God. And each time, each one of those nine times, it's, it's the word agapao or agape. That Greek word that you're perhaps familiar with. That term. Which is mostly used to denote the love that God has for us. Agapao is a love that is active. It's an active, energetic, self-sacrificial love. That's what the word literally means. It's active. It's, 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 it's love that, that dies, essentially. Love that dies to self. Love that uh, dies to its own needs and wants and, 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 and affection for and for the good of the one that is loved. It's not 
a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's a love that is active in terms of its devotion, in terms of its honor, in terms of, uh, of how it is loving the one who is loved. And you can understand right away that this word is important for John. As he, this young apostle, we're not really told how young John was when he was hanging around with Jesus. Here he's an older man, grandfatherly type age. And he's reflecting perhaps on all those early young days, maybe late teens, early 20s. He's, he's a young man when he's in the Gospels, the youngest of all the apostles by far. And he's seeing this, this Jesus show so much love. He's witnessed the very love that he's talking about. Out of all the apostles, who was the only one that was there? John was. He was the only one that was there. John is called out by God, uh, by Christ on the cross. He was the only one that was there to witness this amazing display of, again, the active, self-sacrificial love of God in Christ Jesus. He was there seeing it with his own two eyes. And so this is why you can sense why he writes with such conviction about the fact that this is the love that makes us children of God. And as he's about to show, this is the same sort of love that should typify us. It should be very typical of God's children that they love in this way. And so he gets right to that in verse number 11 where he talks about how this has been the message from the beginning. Again, notice, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Here I think he's harking back to some of Jesus' teachings. Again, if you read John 13, 34, what does Jesus say? Jesus says there, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. John 15, 12 says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Over and over again, Jesus is repeating this mantra that this is indicative of those who, those who follow me, this is what they look like. There's this, again, self-sacrificial, active love that identifies those who are following this one who is the embodiment of love. And of course, the clearest sort of uh, discussion on this is in Matthew 22, where that lawyer comes up to Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus walks him through that. It's love that fulfills the law. Love for God and love for your neighbor. You can see again that this is so imperative uh, in terms of what Jesus was coming to show. It is this very deferential, very self-sacrificial love. That's the sort of love that Jesus has in mind. Um, And it's the very same love that he demonstrated by his life and by his death. And this this is different than the love that was perhaps existent in the Pharisees. And the greatest example of this you can see is from that parable of the Good Samaritan, right? In the Good, in the good Samaritan, you have those three guys who, who walk by that, that really beat up, left for dead guy. Who shows love? Well, the Samaritan does. How? By actively putting himself sort of out of sorts in order to help this man. <laughs> it's an active, self-sacrificial love. And again, he's, he's telling them that you think that there's a certain type of love that fulfills the law. And again, we went over this a little bit this morning when we were talking about um, the Sermon on the Mount and the way in which the Pharisees and those in Jesus' day understood fulfilling the law. 
There was this idea that you had to do certain things and these certain checkpoints and these certain checkboxes and you could do certain things on this day and not on this day and so on and so forth. And if you remember, it's hard not to blame the priest who is walking by. He was just getting off of, of you know, a priestly term in the, ta- in, in, the, in the place of worship, the synagogue perhaps, preaching and teaching for a long time. If he touches this guy, he has to go back and get re-cleansed. I mean, how annoying is that? He wants to just go home. He wants to go home, get on his little sabbaticals so he doesn't have to be away from his family any longer. The point is what? He's not showing love. So when Jesus says, I give you a new commandment, what type of love is he talking about? The love that puts itself in harm's way in order for the good of the other person. Active, self-sacrificing, that's the type of affection that Jesus is talking about exemplified through the Good Samaritan, yes. But yes, more than that, declared once for all by his own death on the cross. Interestingly enough, though, uh, is, is what John does back in our text of chapter 3, is he talks about this love that has been commanded by Jesus, that has been exemplified by Jesus, and then he immediately talks about his opposite. Because you notice in verse 12, he says, We shouldn't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. He starts by talking about this cold-heartedness that existed in Cain. And I think he's using this example for a specific point. I don't think he's trying to sort of make Cain out to be the villain, necessarily. I don't think he's just using Cain because he's an easy target. <laughs> I think he's using it for a really specific example. I think he's show, using Cain to show the point, and again, as he says, that Cain murdered his brother because he was a murderer in his heart first. You know, so that's what he says, essentially. He says, because his own deeds were evil. It's almost hearkening back to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, where it's not the things that you're doing that make you evil. The evil springs from within a man. Cain was already a bad dude. He had sin in his heart. He was born a sinner. So, therefore, he murders his brother because there was already hatred within his heart. That's why he dealt it out to his brother. The act gave evidence to who and where his allegiance was with. The act gave evidence to his allegiance. That's sort of the point John makes in chapter 2, verse 19. So just um, look back there. First John two nineteen, where he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not have conti- they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they, were, they, are, not, they are all not of us. The act is giving evidence to where their allegiance lies. And again, that's where this, this Cain-like spirit, you can understand what he's saying. By their actions, you, you know where their allegiance is. And this Cain-like spirit, as he again says, is perpetuated by this word that he emphasizes, that word hate. You can see it in verse number 15 of our text in chapter 3. This hatred is what perpetuates this Cain-like spirit. Again, what does he say? Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. When you show that hatred, that, that almost murderous spirit towards him, you're mimicking that tragedy of Cain. You're, that's, he, see how he's raising the bar? 
Again, I think what is John doing? I think he's almost, again, uh, he's, he's almost calling back to the Sermon on the Mount where in chapter number five, it's, it's those words where Jesus says, you have heard that it is said that you should, um, um, that whoever murders his brother, he's going to be liable to the judgment. And what does he say? I tell you, you shouldn't even be angry with your brother. <laughs> you shouldn't even be uh, harbor that sort of ill will, even harbor those sort of feelings for those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, he's not talking about unsaved. He's, re- he's talking to a church. How can you, as a church, harbor this, uh, harbor this feeling towards those who are around you? You're, you're acting no better than Cain, who was evidencing his allegiance by how he acted. A unloving Christian is a contradiction in terms. <laughs> because you've been given, again, go back to verse 1, see what manner of love is that song. Oh, how can it be the love that we have from the Father that has made us children of God? How can it be that those same children can be fighting with one another all the time? <laughs> That's sort of John's tenor here. And he proceeds then into exalting this truest form of love in verse number 16. Notice he says, by this we know love, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us. It's Jesus again. He's the picture. He's the evidence. He's the example, the expression of what it means to truly love. We know love nowhere better than in this image, Jesus dying. Jesus laying his life down. Again, it harkens back to, again, it's almost like John is self-referencing himself. Referencing his own gospel, John fifteen thirteen. what does he record Jesus saying? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. <laughs> and here John is saying, that's exactly the point I'm trying to make, that point that Jesus was trying to make. We know love in this ultimate form. Because that's who Jesus is. He's the embodiment of God's active and self-sacrificial love. And I think this is a really important point to make. Because God doesn't just say, I love the world. You know, he, it would be one thing for Jesus to say that, you remember, right, in John three sixteen, God loves the world. But if there wasn't the second half of that verse, that verse would really mean nothing. For God so loved the world. Because he doesn't just love the world in word or in talk. What happens? God comes down. He comes to this earth. He loves this world in what? In deed and in truth, as John is going to say in just a second. Which means he loves it in reality. He puts feet and fingers to what he says that he loves. He puts on flesh. He evidences that love to the fullest extent. Again, that's why Jesus could say, I'm the good shepherd. Because I lay down my life for my sheep. You see, because of Jesus In his willful death, we know what love means. It means sacrifice. And that's why John can continue to say that this is the same love that ought to define us, the children of the God of love. Again, verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. <laughs> He's using the same sort of uh, w- way of thinking, the same sort of logic. 
What good would it do if God had just said, I love the world, but had never done anything about its horrible, wretched, sinful state? It would not really mean anything, really. And again, the same thing that you could apply here. What does it really mean if you say, I love you, brother? I love you, sister? And those words, those words are actually pretty, pretty evocative. You're closing your heart. You're literally closing yourself off from seeing the need or even not even just taking care of the need, but seeing it. it's like you're trying to put blinders on. You don't even want to have knowledge of the need that's in front of you so you don't have to take care of it. <laughs> and that's what John is here emphasizing so powerfully. That doesn't really mean anything because the love that fills us is the love that comes from above. It's the love that has brought us out of death into life. Notice verse 14, that awesome phrase, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers. The love that fills us and then allows us to love one another, it's evidencing what? That you've been raised from death to life. You're giving credence to the fact that that love is, has resurrected your life to the point where you can love others that are around you. And that's the same sort of love, the same sort of care, affection that you ought to demonstrate to others. Again, just as God didn't let his decorate, declaration of love for the world stay as just a mere declaration again, so too ought our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ not remain just Lip service. That's essentially what those words mean there in verse number 18. Well, it's not love in word or in talk. You're just saying things. Saying things to sound nice, to sound supportive, to sound encouraging, to sound caring. And I, I, I'm going to harp on myself. We can just bring, I, everyone harps on this. You know, when you say, I'll pray for you, brother. Pray for you. And how many, do, how many times do we often do it? I've been so encouraged by, uh, by, there's been several times when some men have come around me and they just, instead of just saying, hey, I'll pray for you, what do they do? They stop everything and they come around me and they pray, just right on the spot. <laughs> because you know that they're putting feet behind what other people have said. And I'm not, you know, if you tell me I'll pray for you, I'm not going to be judging you. <laughs> I'm not going to be checking up on you. Um, but I think it's a good reminder to, don't just say things in an empty sort of talk. He says, actually put feet to it. Put some substance behind these, these things that you're saying. Because <laughs> it means next to nothing just to say, I love you. Again, the verses that I thought of is back in James chapter 2. Remember James 2 and verse 14 where he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone has, says he has faith but does not have works? <laughs> can, that say faith, can that faith save him? If a, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, it's, it's worthless. How, how can you say that you belong to the, to the God who is love if you're letting hatred fester? Fester to the point where you're actually dealing out hatred towards your brothers and sisters. That's what John is talking about. And again, I think he's referencing some in this church, but I think he's actually referencing, again, the teachers that were, I think, evidencing who, where their allegiance was by what they were teaching. <laughs> their actions were evidencing the fact that they did not actually know the God of love at all. And he's saying, they're not acting loving at all. 
They're twisting God's words. They're, they're twisting men's faith. They're perverting the gospel. They're corrupting the truth of God. He's telling these brothers and sisters, no, you know love. The love that has been given to you, shown to you, expressed to you in the man of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. And just as true love was expressed by Jesus, you could again say that love, when it is truly uh, implanted in the heart and soul, will always seek to be expressed. That's who Jesus is. He's the heavenly expression of, of God's love for the world. And by the same token, that's who we are supposed to be. Again, verse 16. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This ought to be indicative of us. The same type of love. This doesn't mean you have to go dying for everybody. But it does mean this idea of sacrifice. The idea of putting the needs and the goods of someone else before your own. That's what, how we give evidence to the presence of God's love in us is when we show love for those around us. But I love how John finishes this out because even when we fall short of that, because again, so far it's been sounding, oh man, I can't, I can't do that. How can I live up to that standard? I love how John finishes this out because he says it's God's love that reassures us of our standing, even when our hearts are condemning us. Notice verse number 19. Notice how he finishes this chapter. It's so good. He says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before him. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what he pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Wow. Even when your heart condemns you, what does he say? God's greater than your heart. If you feel as though you're falling short of this, this, this standard, this ideal for loving your brother and sister, in the faith, God is greater than your heart. <laughs> and he reassures you of your standing, giving you confidence to go before him. He knows your motives. He knows your heart. And he quiets all of your raging souls and minds when guilt seems to just do nothing but haunt us. And I love how he closes this out to reassure these children how they can know that they know that they are part of the family of God. It's this love that you have because of who God is. He's your father. The truest, surest evidence that we are God's children is the love we share for each other. And it's always downstream of the love that God has given us. It's always the ways in which we show love is always because of the love that's been shown. First, again, verse one, see what, how, see what this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. It's always downstream of that. It's not the primary source of knowing this evidence that we give. It's, it's the secondary source. The primary source of knowing that we belong to God the Father is Christ, the embodiment of love. And how can you know that you belong to that family? How can you know that Jesus has claimed you for his very own? 
by how you express that love in the world. One commentator put it like this, the evidence furnished by love is both clear and unmistakable. Again, I would emphasize the point. An, an unloving Christian is a contradiction in terms. Because you're forgetting. Like that church in Revelation, you're forgetting your first love. You're forgetting the preeminent point of this whole thing. That you've been brought into the family of God, snatched out uh, from being a child of the evil one to being a child of God by what? The love expressed in Jesus Christ. Forgetting that means you're forgetting the whole purpose. Again, you can think about it this way. Uh, there's this idea that there's, there's the, the, the idea that we understand how we understand righteousness. There's a righteousness that we receive and there's a righteousness that we express. The righteousness that we express is this outward, active, sort of energetic actions. It's the good works that we're doing. They are, they are things that are motivated by what, though? The, the actions that we're doing this way, horizontally, they are always motivated, energized, because of what? The, the love, the righteousness that we've received from the Father. This is the standing that we have with God. Righteousness received, love given, which then motivates love that is expressed, love that is shown, love that has action to it. This type of love doesn't earn this love. It's always the outflow. It's always the overflow, the outpouring of the love that we've received is the love that we express. Like a cup under flowing water. It's just being dumped on. And eventually the water fills up in that cup and it's just overflowing everywhere. That's essentially, I, I, I think about that image, an overflowing cup, silly as that might sound. That's the image I think John has in mind. See what kind of great love we have that, has been, that we have been made the children of God. And that love overflows into the way in which we love our brothers and sisters. I think it ought to be indicative of us that we be a loving church. And I think that that starts with remembering who loved us first. That's kind of where John is going to get to in the next section, in chapter number four. But again, how can we know that we know that we belong to this Christ, that we belong to God by the love that makes us known, by the love that knows us fully and doesn't turn its face away? You think about that. You think about your relationships or your family relationships. You know some things about the people that you love. <laughs> you know some things that perhaps you, wouldn't, you didn't want to know, but you know anyways. And then think about that in terms of God. He knows the deepest, darkest secrets that you haven't let anyone else know. And he doesn't turn away from you and show you hatred. <laughs> He shows you the fullest love you could ever imagine. That's the love that motivates us. That's the love that energizes us. It's a love that makes us fully known and yet still embraces us anyways. See what great love we have because God has made us his children. And therefore we can love our brothers. We can love our sisters. That's how you can know that you know. By the love you show each other. And I pray that we will endeavor to do just that. Let us pray.